0: Coming up, comedian, author, and human encyclopedia, Cliff Nesterov joins Ileana in just a minute.
1: Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk, we talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Eavesdrop with Ileana as she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV shows. Hi, I'm Ileana Douglas. Welcome to I Blame, Dennis Hopper, my co-host, Tamara Berg. Hi, everybody. Hi. Uh, We've got a great guest today. Cliff Nesteroff wrote a fantastic book called The Comedians, uh, sort of an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, comedians. Very fascinating book. We're going to talk to him. I want to talk about a comedian that is in the news, Amy Schumer. Right. This is incredible. Uh, last night she was performing her act and she all of a sudden started to talk about a little anti-Trump a little p- uh, politics Yep. and was asking people in the audience about uh, you know Trump's advances against women, etc. And uh, Two hundred people got up and walked out, angry, said, We just want you to make us laugh. You know, this isn't the platform for this and walked out right. What do you think about that? Well, it's- I
0: mean, I think it's really interesting. One of the one of the things that we sort of brought up was, would they do that for a male comedian? And I know we, you and I, we tend to talk about, you know, women's issues a lot. And yeah. sorry if you're not into it, but if you're <laughs> going to like us, you're going to have to like this about us. <laughs> um, but, you know, would they or would it your assertion was would would it get polite? You know, I feel like band? I feel like
1: that if it was a guy comedian, if Adam Carolla stood up there and said, hey, guys, I just want to talk about something very serious that people would applaud. That's my right? gut feeling. But that a woman doing it, it was just uh, an excuse to get really angry at her and uh, and walk out. 200 people walking out. I mean, that is no, you know, again, something like that. When buyers see walkouts like that, do these people, I'm not sure, do they demand their money back? Is that, you know, but that can be problematic.
2: Yes. A, yes, a, John. John, producer. producer. On yes. The couch. One of the producers. Uh, do you think that's because of the political climate or because, it, see, I think it has a lot to do with the political climate, not just because she's a woman, because I think if it was done and not, it, let's say it was six months Wrong. Wrong. No. <laughs> You're wrong. That's it. I'm no. protesting. I'm walking off now. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 I think it's. I, I. don't think you can, uh, not have that be part of that that equation.
0: Well, you know, like one of the things that's coming up on Facebook these days is people posting pictures of food. Going, when is the election? When is the you know when are things yeah. going to be over so we can go back to what Facebook is really about: cat <laughs> videos and pictures yeah. of what you're eating. That's you know, right. so I mean, maybe that was the thought that they 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 left just because it, it that didn't necessarily have to do with the issue that she was discussing or the people that she was discussing, but just that they they flat out just didn't want to. They just wanted I think to it
1: becomes very tricky. This is something I've. Talked about on the my the show trailblazing uh, women show. You know, if you create a role for yourself uh, as as a female comedian, and maybe your style is to go a little raunchy, mm-hmm. and that's your brand. I think that when you veer into another direction of, oh, now I want to be taken seriously, because I notice a lot of, I'm not, I'm one side or the other, I'm only commenting, a lot of the flack that she then got was, oh, and for this person, she's posed naked and put all these naked pictures up of herself, there's a huge backlash
2: but even that, I mean, she a lot of times she does that in reaction, meaning as a stance, as mm-hmm. to say. Uh, so I don't think it's out of her brand to make this an issue because it seems like she's done that in the past. So for, so for those people who thought that was – not what they were going to get. Going, yeah, this is Amy Schumer. She's done this before. Why were you expecting something different?
0: No, you said though there was another another element to the the timing of it in that it, during her stand-up there were women who were um, she she, she was, wanted
1: people in the uh, audience to stand up to uh, to identify themselves as victims of sexual abuse. This could be, I guess, men uh, or women. And that you know, people started booing her, yeah, and um, you know she was probably again using it as a moment, a social yeah. moment. I mean, and you look at Lenny that. Bruce. That's people, what I was
2: going to say, Lenny Bruce. I mean, yeah. Way comedians have a long history of being a moral compass.
1: I think that is, you know, as an entertainer, you have to know maybe the climate of, uh, you know, the. You know the audience that you're portraying. You know that you're in front of. I remember an experience where my uh, I was doing a uh, a play, and at the curtain call, it's going through like a rough patch in my life. My 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 grandmother was ill; she was you know gonna die, uh, and it was a very emotional play. And for some reason, one night, I just found myself. The audience was really responding, and I found myself doing. I didn't even know I did it, but I did the sign of the cross. <laughs> I genuflected like thank you, you know, and I kinda of did this. And and some and people in the audience started cheering me, right? I didn't even think of it. And then I you know, and then I was sort of full of myself and my it's my I'm on stage, so I started to do a kind of genuflect and the producers got really mad at me. They didn't want me to do that. I was like, What are you doing? Why are you? And I said it's a personal thing, me and my grandmother. Certain prayer I'm doing, you know. They did not; they were not happy. So I stopped doing it. So that was my brief little, uh, you know, kind of my experience as an entertainer is that it's very tricky to walk right. into social. It's like you know, we all have our hands on the Twitter. Mm-hmm. I notice how I, I already I, <laughs> I dated myself. I was doing a typewriter, yeah. and then I had to. Go like this, thumbs, lady thumbs, yeah, it's thumbs, but um, yeah, where you're about to yeah. say something uh, political and you know, eh, you know, I work for a corporation, maybe yeah. I shouldn't do that,
2: but we were discussing how what when did audience gets get so Sensitive. Touchy and sensitive You can't sit and listen to somebody else, even if they have an opposing viewpoint. I mean, you have. To, I mean, they have every right to walk out if they want it's a free country. They can walk out on whatever. Yes, they. Yes. Can. But the fact that you couldn't just sit there and let her make her
0: point and and then and then, and then let it move on and yeah. get to you know the next like, thing. Everything has to be a protest.
1: Yeah, I think that I think issues like that, you know, once I mean, this is comedy, and we'll be interesting talking to Cliff too about, you know, comedians have a role in our society. They're commenting on society, Mm. but underneath all comedians is this really like, you know, they're. Yeah. So I think that sometimes comedians. And I saw this. It seems like with people like George Carlin or mm-hmm. Richard Pryor, you know, it starts to become they, they they it's like you know cooking down wine. You know, yeah. it suddenly becomes very uh, you distilled. know distilled p- distilled what they want to talk yeah. about. And mothers
2: Brothers were great commentators on what was going on in the world.
1: I think eventually all comedians just want to get down to no. Now I just want to talk. I want to really communicate with you from my soul mm-hmm. they sort of need to go through that phase okay. and then maybe after that layer back on the the comedy, mm-hmm. you know, possibly uh, uh,
0: Didn't you do some stand up for a while yourself?
1: I very briefly <laughs> did some, What's well, which it's, uh, I do my, uh, my first ever joke on yes. stage.
0: Oh yes, bring it.
1: Let's go back to 1987 um, I've got hair up big you know, 80s hair. Big, big 80s hair and a big white clip Nice. And I went on stage, and it was I actually it was so funny. It wasn't it was October. And I got on stage and I said, "Oh, God, well, it's autumn in New York. I always love when it is autumn because the bums begin to turn yellow and fall. <laughs> it's just fantastic. What? What?" <laughs> my first i still i still got That's it. it now i am I I'm in protest got, i go i live i'm leaving i live right down the street uh you know where on the west side It's no longer what street do you live on but uh what starbucks are you near and this and i was saying and giving you this context in 1987 when this was just happening it literally like brought the house down i was like no 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 you can't even give directions it's kind of like okay so you're walking up columbus and there's a starbucks and then you're going to cross <laughs> down to amsterdam and there's a starbucks not the starbucks on 72nd the one across the street you know where the bank used to be now it's a starbucks you know. <laughs> so it was i'm killing you are i'm killing here with my jokes
0: <laughs> i think you might need to think about going back on stage uh and how, i would how,
1: do the hippie stuff how,
0: how long did you do that
1: very short time because oh, was it
0: only in New York? I
1: would only it was hysterical because I was I was working at uh, Stand Up New York literally because I would I needed the money I entered this contest and I won fifty dollars and then wow uh, yeah they, they liked you know they were like we'll put you on the bill and and I told her I used to walk from my apartment on Sixty Street and I would do my material for my roommate and he'd say you're not funny. I was like, what? It's funny. Like, how hard could it be? Like, ten, you know, you'd only I'd only have to go up for like 10 minutes, you know. So it didn't even seem that hard to string together you know, 10 uh, jokes. But they would put me on bill with only female. It would be like, ladies night. So, <laughs> you know, and then you wouldn't go on until like oh, I was like, oh, good Lord. Ten, yeah. you know, 10 o'clock at night and I got a little manager of, of sorts and he sent me up I had I remember having to take the train to Mount Vernon, New York and do this Performance and I left at like, you know, one o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, talk about groped. It was like, you know, uh, when wasn't I groped in these early, you know, I used to say to the other female comedians, like, did, you know, did Bruce like, you know, like the Mr. Did Octopus any action, And, you know, any action
0: from Bruce last Yeah, light? and I'd
1: be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'd be like, oh, oh, mm, okay. Maybe it's mm, okay, you know, but I was always navigating that. And then that trip to Mount Vernon and I remember like having to get home on the train and it was like I'd spent most of my money just getting there you know so it just the life for me was um, uh, not great and as soon as I got into um, and that's when I was in the sketch comedy group too called Manhattan Punchline but I got my little uh, I got that little gig in uh, New York Stories and I was like adios comedy, but I would do my little routines as I wrote about my book. I would do uh, Martin Scorsese. Uh, one of my crazy routines was called Raging Bullwinkle. So I would do <laughs> Rocky, did you fuck my wife? And Then the squirrel would, would go Are you out of your mind? Mar- Are you crazy? So I'd do this routine and Mar- Marty would say, Oh, you gotta you gotta do that routine for Bob. And that was I've talked about like this before. Literally the scariest thing I've ever had to do is face Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro. Doing raging bullwinkle? Yes. Nice. Uh, and luckily <laughs> luckily for me, they both laughed. Yeah. But um I couldn't stomach the world. the world was like you know, the comedians you'd finish and it would be midnight, and they'd say, "Okay, well, you know, now we're going to go on the train and go down to catch a Rise of Star. I was like, "No, I'm I'm going home. I'm I'm exhausted, you know." Plus, I didn't have any money. I was like, oh, "I saved my money. I'm not going to go down." So it the life wasn't for me. But years later, I put I sort of put that into the doing the living room show, doing because I do love commenting. I mean, doing a a joke, you know, now and then about current events. You know, that's and I have tons of friends who are comedians, and I worked with a lot of comedians, Gary Shandling, Jay Moore, Drew Carey, Adam Carolla, uh, many, many famous comedians that I've, that I've, you know, worked with Buddy Hackett, Jerry Lewis. Oh, wow. So I'm fascinated by comedians, absolutely fascinated. Um, even I, growing up, not as fascinated with female comedians. You know, Joan Rivers.
0: There weren't many to choose from. Though,
1: Mom's out, <laughs> there was, Yeah, there wasn't too many. I, You know, I did like Mae West. She was sassy. Yes. I liked her. Yes. I thought she was good. But anyway.
0: I think we should bring in Cliff. Let's Don't bring in Cliff, Cliff Nesteroff.
1: I want to see what he has to say about this Amy Schumer situation. Cliff Nesteroff. Cliff, did you bring in your book? Yes, Bring in your book, please. You may replace my book.
0: <laughs> I will permit
1: I will permit you to replace my book with your book, which is... Oh, you got the paperback already. Yeah, it hasn't come out yet. This I is, love uh, this. Oh, exciting. Uh, exciting and new. Cliff Nesteroff is here, the comedians.
0: Headphones for you there. All right.
1: Put that on. Uh, I will put my book. Yeah, you have. It's it's so funny. You know, Cl- Cliff and I, uh, we wrote a book at the same, sort of at the same time.
3: Yeah. Exactly the same time. Yeah,
1: came out. Our books came out at the same day. And yours is coming. Mine's coming out on paperback October 25th. 25th. And yours is yeah. coming out November, November 8th. 8th. November
3: yeah. 8th. The, the, wait, the day of the election or the day that. I think the election's on the 4th, isn't it? Or the 3rd? The 6th. Neither no, of Uganda. us know. <laughs>
1: I know we're only 20 days away. <laughs> Campaigns
3: only been having for seven years now, and uh, oh, we remember. don't know the date of the election. I think God, mine comes out right. after the election. Yes, which was the a cons- election.
0: Election day is the eighth
3: no yes
0: it is the day your, your book, book comes is out. coming out on the election yes well, it is there you go there so you
3: go once my publisher was a little bit concerned because i'm going to new york that week to promote the book and they're like yes. uh good luck getting <laughs> some coverage on. no
1: you don't need any help your book has been uh is on many tell tell us some of the uh it's been on like best lots of best lists
3: well i don't want to toot my own horn but sure if, you, you do. if you open the flap of the book there's the all the up-to-date things i think it's the oh best God, book is of the amazing. year amazing I know. National Post best book of the year, yeah. Los Angeles Times one of the best books of the year, uh, LA I... Weekly a best book of the year, but that was last year. So, best? It's not I hope we have even... a, So,
0: so we're gonna we're gonna be going for best paperback of the best year. best paperback of
3: the year, or... of the year. I okay, hope. Perfect. So
0: I, hope. I
1: I followed Cliff. I knew no, I know nothing about books. I just was like I was thrilled that I could even complete a book, I, <laughs> but like I don't <laughs> understand any of the like. Oh, you have to get
3: quotes and. Oh yeah. Did you find that? Oh, yeah. It's like anything in show business when you ask your friends for a favor. It's like you have to apologize yeah. ten times and go, I, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. Right. Because it's always somebody else asking you to ask somebody for that favor. You know so-and-so. Could you ask them to do this? Yeah. So you always don't want to do that. But then you're in this circumstance where you have to ask. And it's very difficult. But I lucked out. You know, I asked Mel yes. Brooks, which was pretty ballsy. Wow. And he gave me a, a quote for the back of the book. And uh, uh, Mark Marin. Yeah, actually, the... the Five people that I asked, they all gave me the quote, but I did wow. it with great trepidation and uh, yes. apology.
1: So now, terrible question: Do you have a favorite comedian?
3: Well, I usually say Mel Brooks because it's like a non-controversial answer because everybody loves him, you know. But as soon as I start playing well, favorites, then I start to lose credibility as a objective historian because no, if somebody doesn't like that person, then they're like, well, maybe well, they don't respect my opinion. You, you know? know,
1: I've said this about Mel Brooks. Uh, you know, when Sid Caesar died, and once Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner go, like, that's it, yeah. right? Mike Nichols is gone. Uh, but more, I think that the when I think of comedy, and I, when I interviewed Carl Reiner, I said this too, like my introduction to comedy was watching my parents listen to 2,000-year-old man, Mel Brooks and yeah. Carl Reiner, and laughing and yeah. kind of going, okay, I, I want in on this, I right. don't know what this is, but Something they're doing on the record is engaging my crazy alcoholic parents. Right. So,
3: (laughs) yeah, Mel Brooks to me is like a universal in terms of like appeal. Young people, old people, all generations. And usually when a comedian gets older, Don Rickles or whoever, they become less funny to the new generation. But Mel Brooks can still go on Conan O'Brien or Jimmy Kimmel and kill, destroy. Yeah. Everybody else who's that age who would go on that show we would laugh more politely if yes. you know what I mean not uncontrollably, uncontrollably or impulsively like we would with Mel Brooks even mm-hmm. Don Rickles who I love right. he does a lot of the same shtick whenever he's on the thing and he's getting older so sometimes mm-hmm. he has better days than others and so when we laugh we laugh because we love Don Rickles not right. so much because of impulsively just uncontrollable laughter. But Mel Brooks, you don't have to even know who he is. He comes on one of those shows, and he'll make you laugh. He destroys. So he's sort of like this anomaly, a space traveler in, in comedy where he appeals to everybody, yeah. no matter how old he gets, mm-hmm. doesn't lose any energy whatsoever, remains uh, universally hilarious. So I usually say Mel Brooks is my favorite for that reason. Yeah.
1: See, he and Carl Reiner seem to, they their material just didn't date. Now, who are some of the comedians that just do not... That you write about that don't, uh, you know, sort of travel well currently.
3: Almost all of them. I mean, uh, Milton Berle is like that. When we think about Milton Berle, he was the biggest star in comedy. Yes, he was. Late 40s, early 50s. And, dis- and, and for
1: people who don't, I mean, it sounds hard to believe because we yeah. know these yeah, people, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, like, let's go through some comedians and like, what, what do they know? I, cause it's one of my favorite things in the world, like Jack
3: Carter, right? Be, Jack Carter based
1: yeah. an entire career on like, you know, like what,
3: you know? Yeah. Well, there was a lot of guys in that era who just kind of had a shtick that, yeah, uh, that they outlived their own shtick though, you know? So yeah. there were these guys who were at the height of their fame during the Ed Sullivan show, but when right. the seventies came along and a new crop came up, they weren't really able to adjust. So if Jack Carter performed at a comedy club in the 1970s, uh, he would feel a little bit alienated because he was still doing the same style, whereas these new kids were talking about their lives, contemporary issues. But Jack Carter's premise was always, these kids today. You know, but yeah. his audience now was those kids today. So you can't say that to those right. those kids. You know, it's like today if you go up and you're shitting on millennials as part of your act right. and that audience is all millennials, they're gonna kinda reject what you're saying rather than relate to it or accept yeah. it, you know. So you have to know your audience. So a lot of comedians, as they get older, mm-hmm. they're not able to adjust. They're still performing to their same age group. Understandably so. Uh-huh. But if you want longevity in comedy, you have to learn how to have that wide appeal to all generations. Otherwise, you're only going to be when you're 70, your audience will be 70, and that's right. it. You know. So and Jack they, Carter was sort of like that.
1: And the uh, we we're mentioning uh, Milton Berle. Of course, the uh, is he like the first comedian that has like a major television
3: yeah more or less more success. or less the texaco uh, star theater which was his show in 1948 they mm-hmm. initially didn't know who they wanted to host that show they had a rotation of four hosts for the first six months mm-hmm. milton Berle was one of them Jack Carter was one of them. A guy named Georgie Price, who was completely forgotten, a mimic, uh, was one of them. And uh, the other spot was sort of like a a rotating thing where they they said they were going to have Groucho Marx actually host that show initially, but he never did it. Um, But after a while, they discovered that Burl was pulling in the best ratings. Mm -hmm. He was also just the most uh, television uh, savvy. At the time, he had his own uh, six-night-a-week stand at a nightclub in New York. Mm -hmm. So when you saw him on TV, he was basically doing exactly what he was doing in nightclubs at the same time. So he really just kind of knew how to play to that camera at a time mm-hmm. when nobody did. You know, the only reason Ed Sullivan had a TV show is because nobody nobody could do a TV show. Right. And he couldn't either, but he did it and so yeah. he became famous. But he was the least photogenic, telegenic <laughs> guy you could ever imagine and remained so for a long time. And uh, Pat Cooper, an elderly comedian, said, uh, said to me, he goes... Uh, Nothing else was on. We didn't know any b- better. Ed Sullivan wouldn't get on slides today, you know. <laughs> and it's true; like there was, uh, there was nothing else really on. Your competition was just grainy old monogram movies, you know. Yeah. So uh, a lot of people became stars at the start of TV, late forties, early fifties, who may not otherwise have become stars later on when people had more experience, you know. What
1: do you think is the idea? I know when I was a kid, I was fascinated by comedians because they would always wear a suit. Right. That was like my, mm-hmm. I just gra. I don't know why I thought that was fascinating as like a four or five year old, mm-hmm. you know, watching him on Ed Sullivan, you'd see, you know, Buddy Hackett or any of these older guys, Jack Benny. And what, what is the part of the suit
3: mentality? Well, back in those days, and some of the old guys still believe this, that you should be, uh. Jerry Lewis. Uh, uh, You should be a step above your audience. Yeah, Um, it's part of the sort of theory behind the raised stage that you are superior to this audience. Mm -hmm. You're dressed better than them. You're you're amplified for a reason. Mm -hmm. What you have to say is meaningful. But if you dress the same way as the audience, you're kind of at their level. Right. And I used to have this uh, philosophy when I did stand-up. I would never drink anything before I went on stage. And a lot of comics would. Mm-hmm. But if I was drunk, then it brought me to my the same level as that audience. You right. Know, I wasn't a step above. But they're all drunk and I'm sober. Right. I kind of, I'm faster. I'm quicker. I'm, I'm more aware of everything. And a comedian should always be faster and quicker and more aware of everything other mm-hmm. than Um, You know, more so than their audience. So I think the suit, again, it's just a sense of professionalism that um, tells people this is a show. I'm the important star of this show. Um, You know, guys like Adam Sandler, they don't care. They go up there in baggy volleyball shorts and stuff like that, which is fine. They're still funny. But at the same time, it's also a bit of a distraction. Although maybe these days wearing a suit would be more distracting, I'm not sure. But well, there
1: was Drew Carey, remember? I mm-hmm. see, I love Drew Carey because I thought that was such a throwback. I was like, oh, this guy's interesting. He mm-hmm. looks sort of like a throwback, and I, I, I love the Drew Carey show, too. Um, now, do you, uh, do you get into the? I mean, let's talk about some of the female comedians, mm-hmm. which there aren't. I mean, too many. We were making a joke about Moms Mabley, and, right?
3: Moms John Mabley Rivers. was one of the one of only two <laughs> solo stand-up comedians uh, women in that era. And I do get criticism that about era, that in that my era book.
0: being when
3: the 50s, 1930s oh, and oh, 40s. Gosh. Yeah. Um really and then, early. and in the 50s and 60s people like Toti Fields, Phyllis Diller, right. Joan Rivers came along, but I get criticism with my book because people say, "Well, how come there aren't more women in your section about the 30s and 40s?" I go, "Every single one is is in there." You know, they were right. doing stand-up. But Women who were doing comedy in those days were more actresses. You know, Claudette Colbert right. was a comedian in mm-hmm. movies. She wasn't doing stand-up. Stand-up was right. a vocation that was pretty much reserved for men. And if you were doing comedy in nightclubs as a woman, you were usually part of a comedy team like Burns and Allen. Mm-hmm. Or you were doing, like, song parodies or sketches. It was like cabaret, mm-hmm. is what they called it. Right. As opposed to straight stand-up. Even Moms Mabley was going on stage in character. She wasn't, mm-hmm. as herself talking right. about her life um, but a woman named Jean Carroll uh, started to do that around uh, the late 30s early 40s when mm-hmm. her uh, husband enlisted they had been in a comedy team but he went off to war and now she had to uh, fulfill all these engagements they were already booked for so she adjusted her act and went solo and mm-hmm. figured out a way to get rid of the the setup straight lines and just did the jokes herself and she became one of the first real potent uh, female stand-ups of her time and if you ever see Jean Carroll's uh, work on YouTube there's a couple clips She's like a Rodney Dangerfield. It's like Mm -hmm. joke, 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 just boom, Mm. boom, boom. And she's hilarious. And it's a very contemporary uh, feel and style to it today. Like if you look at some of uh, Jean Carroll's material, you'd still laugh impulsively, I think.
1: I think it's hard. I mean, again, and I very briefly uh, did stand up back in uh, 19, you know, 87, 88. And in those days, you know, they would separate. You'd be on like ladies night. Oh, yeah. 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 And and, you know, the trouble that I had, which is probably what a lot of women would have is I would get up there. I never really found my voice. I would just kind of get up there and be funny and right. tell things. But I that's where I always found it. I found personally to be uncomfortable as a woman on stage. Mm. It felt so confrontational. It was late at night and people were drinking and I was like, Ugh, this is I'd leave with kind of a bad taste in my mouth. Mm-hmm. And some of the female comedians, you know, that were going, that was just the beginning of understanding that when they would talk dirty, it was like the audience just really responded.
3: Yeah, I still don't really understand what well, the hang-up the was. Yeah, I still don't understand what the hang-up was. And is, despite doing all this research, why there was like this rejection or barrier from many audiences to a female on stage. And you hear old guys like Milton Berle come up with these stupid theories like, well, it's not ladylike to hear a woman telling jokes a woman should be a lady. And you're like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> what does that even mean? Um, so I never really understood that. Yeah. But it is a hostile environment to be surrounded by drunk men if you're a woman, period. And so that is kind of where your job takes place in a comedy club is surrounded by drunk dudes. So that alone creates an atmosphere that is not uh, uh, desirable, really, for developing an act. You're fighting, you're battling these idiots at all times. It's very difficult to develop material in that uh, circumstance. So I think just general sexism had more to do with uh, keeping women from doing stand than than any other uh, consideration, yeah. you know.
1: Yeah, because once you didn't, you know, Phyllis Diller had the, you know, or Joan Rivers, the, their brand was kind of like they could talk about their husbands, mm-hmm. and and that was, the, you know, that was their brand. But then then that kind of got thrown out the window too. I feel like one of the only successful people was Ellen, that she was able to just talk and kind of be funny. Mm-hmm. I was always sort of sad that she became a successful, you know, she moved to, t- I think a lot of these comedians, you find that, like, well, the minute they become successful, they're like, right, they right, leave I'm, stand-up. I'm yeah. done with stand-up. But she was one of the few people I thought that was like, oh, okay, you're." she was onto something. There here. were a
3: few uh, people in the 80s, like Margaret Smith and Wendy Liebman and mm-hmm. Laura Keitlinger, who were more low-key and brilliant, right. and I think it was just an evolution of America getting used to what stand-up was as an mm-hmm. art form, because if you go back further, Tody Fields, Phyllis Diller, Joan Rivers, I hate to use this phrase because it always seemed a little bit sexy or uh, sexist, but they described them as brassy. Right. But they were. They were loud, they were fast and it Mm -hmm. was like a survival thing, you know. The drunk guy in the audience isn't going to yell show us your tits if you're Speaking fast and quick, you know, Right. whereas in the 80s, somebody like Margaret Smith, Wendy Liebman and Ellen, much more low key, quiet, measured. And I think it was a survival thing prior to that Mm -hmm. where the women doing stand up were, were much faster and louder and weren't able to really just be a human being talking. But uh, I think all stand-up kind of evolved into a little bit more of a human art form eventually. Because even a guy like Jack Carter or Milton Berle, when they're up there, they're talking loud and fast, and they're not speaking like a human being, nor are they talking about their own life. They're talking about the guy and the girl went to a doctor's office. The doctor said, you know, it's (laughs) never about them. So stand-up evolved in a way over the course of history Because when it started in the teens, 20s, 30s, it's still a very new art form. Just like silent movies could not be more different than contemporary cinema. It's Mm -hmm. an evolution that takes place over the course of many, many years. So stand-up, the same thing, and women in stand-up, the same thing. Now, hopefully, we're at a place where... Uh, people who are funny can be themselves on stage without the social pressures of trying to be something else. You know.
1: Well, we were talking, you know, about the the thing that happened last night with Amy Schumer two hundred people walking out because she wanted to talk about, you know, a social issue, political issue, and then comparing that to somebody like Lenny Bruce. Um, and does a you know does a comedian uh, do themselves a ill service by You know, as somebody yelled out, we just came to see the jokes, you know, like, did they get themselves in trouble?
3: Should they only be funny? Well, I mean, funny first and then everything else second. But Mm -hmm. it's funny how people distort what came before the same way that, uh, you know, right wingers will say, well, these protesters today should be more like Martin Luther King when it was these type of people that would have rejected Martin Luther King. You know, Um, it's the same thing with comedy they say we just came here from the for the jokes but i'm sure a lot of those people's favorite comedians are like social commentators like right. george carlin and louis ck so i don't know the context of that amy schumer thing 200 people walking out sounds like a coordinated effort to me we're all 200 of those people together because that seems really absurd that uh, uh instantaneously that many people would walk out of anything really no, but... i
0: don't think they were i don't i don't think it was I and n- it was a pretty big venue from what yeah, yeah. too. yeah
3: I've, I've never i've never heard of such a thing, but.
1: It was a, she. She got into a topic that obviously troubled people. She wanted people to stand in the audience that had been victims of sexual abuse.
3: Right. Well, that's that's maybe making people uncomfortable right. and awkward so as opposed to laughing or telling doing material about the subject matter. Yeah. So I could I could see that in in a way. I don't know. There's lots of comedians out there who, and I'm not saying Amy Schumer is one, but who like the idea of making people uncomfortable. Yes, you know right, what I, I mean? agree. You go Absolutely. to a comedy club and, you, you know, that's the reason people nobody wants to sit in the front row of a comedy club. They're afraid they're going to be put on the spot and made uncomfortable. And then there's right. people who take the uh, uh, the cues of an Andy Kaufman, a guy like Eric Andre, and they want to make the audience confused between reality and fantasy. And yeah. it's not just about uh, laughter. It's about like a performance or an, uh, an effect on the audience. For me, I love pure comedy that just makes me laugh. And it could be yeah. political, but it's, it's got to make me laugh without me even thinking, really. It should be yeah. like a reflex. That's when you know something is truly funny. Mm-hmm. If you're laughing without thinking about it, without trying to laugh or not laugh, you just laugh. To yeah. me, that's like pure comedy, and that's like the sweet spot you want to hit.
0: Who, who does make you laugh in particular? Because you're such an expert, and you've, you've been exposed to so much of it. Yeah, like I usually
3: of- don't. I, I'll say, but I usually don't say because if it's anybody's least favorite comedian, then this book suddenly loses all credibility. you know. And I don't describe anybody as funny or unfunny in the book for that reason. you just
1: a historian. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. Just I'm telling the stories of these people who did comedy regardless of my opinion. But these days I love... uh, Norm Macdonald is one of my favorite. I think he's got Mm. one of the most unique uh, Uh uh, uh, points of view. Uh, I love... um, uh, Who do do I love? Well, Norm Macdonald is right up at the top. Oh, Brian Regan is a guy who I think is... Really uh, mm-hmm. conveys what I was saying, just pure funny. I saw mm-hmm. him in Jamestown, New York, recently do 90 minutes, and it was like physically painful in the face after a while from just right. laughing so hard. He was just a an absolute natural. But I really love uh, most comedians. I really respect anybody who does stand up, and I defend a lot of comedians who are not uh, cool or popular yeah. to like. Like a lot of people love to hate on Carrot Top or Jimmy Fallon, but. Um, when they do what they're good at, I uh-huh. mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Anything that makes somebody laugh, I think, uh, deserves uh, a little bit of props. You know,
1: my favorite is uh, George Lopez. Really? I oh my god, he is so I. You know, I was aware of jo- George Lopez from television, and then I got cast in a pilot, and I went to see his show because we were doing the show. And I, I mean, he's like a superstar again. It was one of these wake up calls, like, oh, I'm white. I'm not, I'm totally, <laughs> I'm, I'm totally unaware right. of like this, you, this stadium. Right. Um, well, there's,
3: that's the other thing. And he about- was
1: so, it was, it killed me because it was ethnic and my roots are ethnic. Right. Italian. Right, I right, love, right. I love. So you were
3: able to relate to it on a different uh, level. I but lo- he was talking
1: about his, his Mexican grandmother chasing him around, like, come here and hitting him with rings and, you know, and it, it, like that to me, I love ethnic humor because that's what I grew up with around Italians. And we kind of got away from that. It's the commentary. It's like you said, the white guys commenting about this and that. But it's very au courant, very cultural. And I have the old school, like, I love making fun of your cultural identity.
3: Well, Russell Peters is now the master of that. That's all he does yeah. is is specific cultures, hitting on the cliches and the stereotypes and making everybody laugh. Because of it. Sometimes we forget, a guy like George Lopez, we'll see him on TV, we'll see him in a a sitcom or a movie. We forget that they're stand ups almost. And there's certain people that you don't understand why they became famous uh, until you see them do stand up. And you're like, oh, they're a master. At this art form, a guy like Louis Anderson, you know, if you're not going to see him in Las Vegas, you might even forget that Louis is around right. until recently with the TV show. But again, he's a master of stand up, He's been doing it since the late 70s. So even if you're a snob and you enter that arena thinking you don't like Louis Anderson, you're going to be uh, Slade. He's going to kill you, you yeah. know, because he's such a master at uh, at that art form. And Norm Macdonald is another guy. A lot of people don't even realize he's a stand-up. They mm-hmm. know him from SNL and that's it, you know. So stand-up is a very unique kind of art form that takes years to to master. And there's a lot of people that are just dynamite at that more so than anything else. And mm-hmm. I, I could definitely see that with uh, George Lopez. I mean, that yeah. was... And then old school for me is Albert Brooks. Oh, Albert Brooks's is, comedy is for one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his his two records are great. I
1: to again and again. And then uh, when we were in high school, we would listen to Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. Cheech and Chong a little bit. You know, it wasn't really my cup
3: of tea. Right.
1: But I thought it was fun. You know, we laughed at it and stuff. But I, uh, yeah,
3: I always loved Up in Smoke. I thought that was the kind of apex <laughs> yeah. of, of Cheech and Chong. I but thought we that actually,
1: movie's... we bought comedy. Did you do that growing up? Buy comedy I albums? Did. I mean, when we, I was, when I was Monty growing Python.
3: up. I, yeah, when I was growing up, I was buying them in a thrift store because it was no longer, a vinyl was no longer an entity. But I, one of the first records I ever bought, three the first three LPs I ever bought, actually, were all comedy records and three different Genres. One was Monty Python, Live at Drury Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other was Stan Freeberg with the original cast, is what mm-hmm. it was called. And the other one was Wayne and Schuster, Live in Comedy Performance. Now, Monty uh-huh. Python are, are British absurdists. Yeah. Wayne and Schuster were a Canadian comedy team. And Stan Freeberg was an American satirist from the 50s. So there's three very different styles, but I loved all of them. And George Carlin, I really discovered uh, through his records. Like mm-hmm. I had known him from like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, you know, but I didn't know, <laughs> wow. I didn't know that he that's... was a brilliant stand-up. Same with all these people. Cause I'm a little bit younger than people would expect based on yeah. my subject matter. And, uh, Don Rickles, I first saw in a sitcom called uh, daddy dearest with Richard Lewis. He played Richard Lewis's father. It only lasted a season. Wow. And Jonathan Winters, I discovered in a sitcom called Davis rules again, just a one season. Yeah. None of these things were particularly good, yeah. but that's how I knew who these people were. But then I went back and started collecting records, and I bought the George Carlin record, uh, FM and AM, and I listened Mm -hmm. to it, and it was hilarious. Yeah. And I had no idea that George Carlin was George Carlin. I just Mm. thought he was Rufus from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. (laughs) Oh, God. But, yeah, that really gave me a whole new uh, universe. Comedy records, I started buying. Every one I saw in a thrift store, no matter if I liked them or not, or knew who yeah. they were or not, and eventually I had a thousand uh, comedy LPs.
1: I have a question for you because I growing up with listening to comedians, there was always like a hard rule of like he didn't work blue, you know, like that was crossing the line, or mm. only certain yeah. comedians, you know, Red Fox, or right? Th- it was like he works blue, and it, you know, but nowadays, in order to communicate with kids, you you have to use sort of vulgar. I mean, am I? I don't I know if like you. A, I don't know that you sort of vulgarity. I don't know to that you.
3: I don't know that you have to. But we. You don't want to be using colloquialisms from the 1940s either. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you. <laughs> Which want to, I do all the time. <laughs> you want to use whatever, like uh, gangbusters. Yeah. <laughs> you want to use whatever language will help you connect and relate and communicate. And I don't think it's so much the comedians have to work blue. It's just that off stage now, most of us. Don't have to worry or think twice about using a swear word generally, unless yeah. we're around our grandma who's old school or something. But in general conversation, if we swear, it's not a big deal. Whereas 50 years ago, it was a very big deal, you know. So well, I think just it's sort of the evolution of society as opposed to uh, because a lot of older comedians will say, well, four letter words, the easy way to get a laugh. Maybe one, maybe in the sixties it was, but now if you say a four letter word, it's so common that it doesn't get an instantaneous laugh at all. So no,
0: and that's a little like wearing a suit too, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's more, as you were saying, it's kind of unusual to be wearing a suit now. And
1: well, no, I've, you know, my complaint a little bit with watching some of these young comedians, they go out and they like, they're like, dude, what the fuck? And you sent me a dick pic. And I'm like. Is there a joke in here? Right. Like I'm I'm sort of waiting for the right. uh, well, there's, I'm old school like construction stand Yeah, joke. absolutely.
3: It's this there's a sloppiness <laughs> to stand up now that there never used to be. Yeah. But at the same time through your sloppiness is how you find your material. Hopefully when somebody does a stand up special mm-hmm. they don't sound like that. But when you go and see them in a club mm. they often do because there is a sense of disposableness when you're working out material on stage now in a in a comedy club that will have somebody talking like that but hopefully it gets refined to a point where all that extraneous uh rambling and mm-hmm. and, and and ambling about for what you're trying to say is uh, is what's the phrase i'm trying to find it's distilled so that it's right. perfect hopefully you mm-hmm. know um i was always a writer so when i did stand up it was always very meticulously Phrase probably to my detriment because I wasn't very good yet. Mm-hmm. Had I been rambling about I probably would have been able to write on stage and create more material, but I was right. very uh, specific to what I would write out. But I like that respect for the art form, the George mm-hmm. Carlin or the Louis C.K., who is meticulous about the phraseology, about getting to the punchline using the least amount of words necessary. Mm-hmm. And it does drive me crazy, a lot of modern stand-up where it's just ambling and just oh what what the fuck is this you know this fucking guy fucking yeah. man. and it's not even about swearing it's to me more about uh superfluous uh words yeah you know
1: just sort of bridging mm-hmm. vamp i call it vamping like they're kind of vamping and i don't but i i kind of can't really follow the the joke now i'm a you know i of course i love uh i'm obsessed with old movies and i talk about film history yeah, of course but in terms of your book yeah why, why is it important? Why is it important to know the history of these comedians and of American comedy?
3: Well, I don't know that it's important. I think people could it live is. a full life without it's ever knowing important. anything about it. It's not important. But, But <laughs> it does help. Uh, it does help. Context. <laughs> history is context. So if yeah. you know history, then you are prepared for the future. So i won't get political here but if you know your political history then you can foresee current political trends and the parallels and that's mm-hmm. forebodingness you know so it's the same with comedy in a way i get interviewed all the time about political correctness mm-hmm. drives me crazy cliff they'll say cliff uh so you can't joke about anything anymore what with political correctness and all and i'm like you can't norm mcdonald bill burr louis ck sarah silverman amy schumer Compared to the 50s, it right. sounds like you can joke about anything now, yeah, and I then agree. 50, 60 years ago you couldn't joke about anything. So it's the opposite, but people yeah. kind of fall into these ideas without knowing their history of uh, you know, and make judgment calls based on that. But if you know your history, right. then you also know your present and you have perspective. So mm. for me it's important because it gives you perspective on what's happening now, what might happen in the future um likewise when i get criticized that there's not enough uh, women in the book and that could that could very well be true there could always be more women in the book but if you don't know the history of stand up mm-hmm. then you're going to come to that conclusion that there's not enough women in the book the reality is there's not enough women in the history of stand up you know what i mean right. in the 30s and 40s so once you have um a clear idea of where we came from then you know where we're going so that's why it's important
1: i love it because I like to know, you know, if you're if you're planning on becoming a comedian, so you are not just standing in front of a mic like vamping mm-hmm. and, you know, like you're thinking you're funny mm-hmm. when you're not really funny, but looking at comedians and going, oh, OK. Uh, Bob Newhart, he he had this particular style and looking at all the different people and kind of adapting, saying, oh, I think I want to go in the vein of Albert Brooks. Like for me, that was I was like, I want to go in the vein of Albert Brooks.
3: Yeah. Well, when I was writing this book and I was trying to decide where to start it, it starts in vaudeville. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, I don't know how to make vaudeville interesting for like a contemporary Audience. I certainly can't like show examples of material and say this was hilarious because it won't translate at all. You know, it's a different time period. But as I was researching, I kind of hit on the pulse of how to do it, which was to explain what the lifestyle was uh, for a comedian in the 20s. -hmm. And I realized it's basically the same as today. You know, it's Mm -hmm. a different era, it's a different style it's a different venue but these comedians started with nothing in terms of material Mm -hmm. they went in front of an audience they tested their act it either worked or it didn't and they slowly whittled away what didn't work and built up what did work and Mm -hmm. and created an act and toured around and became good became famous or they never became good but that's the same today so the stand-up circuit today is very similar to the vaudeville circuit in terms of what the comedian has to go through you have to suffer in front of people on stage and mm-hmm. bomb and not be good in order to learn how to be good. So that's the way I made it uh, tangible, you know, by correlating those. Well, there must be a, I mean, I always think with comedians
1: again, I've worked with so many comedians and most of them are so dark. Have right. been have been so troubled and so dark. And what is that need to be alone on stage with a microphone uh talking, you know?
3: uh i think the need is a narcissism frankly
1: (laughs) well i have to say they're not the easiest people to act with because it's you have to constantly go no i now i talk no it's absolutely true it's absolutely true. you talk and talk now i talk
3: (laughs) no absolutely i mean I've, i've done a lot of panels since this book came out with comedians on the panel and I'm the, I'm supposed to be the star of of the panel, and then I realize, oh, it's it's a fight, like oh, puppies no, fighting yeah. for their teeth, because everybody just is used no. to being on stage alone, and they they want to be the focus of attention. So yes. you really have to fight to get your words in and hold your sentences before somebody interrupts. It's very, very difficult. But yeah, uh, comedians, very selfish. <laughs> Tent, yes, tend, uh, or, tend and,
1: and they never laugh, too. When I, I remember when I would work with, you know, like a Drew Carey, or a, I guess I think of myself as funny, and I'd be like, hey, Drew. But they just stare at you. Give me the like, on the I said, I know, "Come on, that's funny." You know, or uh, Gary Shandling was the worst too. I was like, "Hey Gary, what if I do this?" Yeah, uh, I want you to walk in the door. I mean, like, come on, that's funny. But uh, yeah, they're they're they got to be the funny ones. Yeah, they always have to be the topper. Um, the the other thing I was gonna say, just talking about film comedy, yeah uh a tragedy for me would be that they got rid of the old max senate studios which was in located which is the center this is the beginnings of comedy of filming where they threw the first mm-hmm. uh, pie and uh that's all gone and just again those those the origins of the early film comedians mm-hmm. do you have any favorites
3: Ah, well, you know, I find it really interesting. Just recently I was thinking about this, how much I love Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, mm-hmm. but the things that we remember about them and the clips that we see are not necessarily funny. They're mm-hmm. stunts, which are actually very serious. Right. So it's a house falling on Buster <laughs> Keaton or almost getting hit by a train or Harold Lloyd dangling from the clock. But there's actually no joke there. It's just peril. Yeah, yeah. They're like, you're watching the greatest stuntman of all time. And yeah. I just was thinking about that recently and going... The movies are funny, but what we remember about them are not the funny parts. It's those visual things. And for me, what I love about movies, period, my favorite movies are visually striking. Mm-hmm. And it frustrates me today that last 30 years or so, comedy films are very boring to look at. Mm-hmm. They might be funny. Often mm-hmm. they're not. But it's all, it all hinges on a dialogue. And I'm, yeah. a, and I'm a writer, so I understand that, yeah, a script is great. But if it's a movie, it should look yeah. Funny. My favorite comedy film is uh, Playtime, Jacques Tati. Mm-hmm. And it's because to look at, it's visually, it's a feast. You know, right. the aesthetics are funny and there's all these visual gags. And that's what I love about that era of Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton. There's so mm-hmm. much to look at by virtue of the fact that there was no sound. But I, there's nobody that I can think of that's really visually mm-hmm. uh, doing anything exciting yeah, that's in comedy a great- films
1: point. Because you think of like Frank Tashlin and Jerry Lewis. Exactly. Everything is kind of like bright. The, uh Did you ever see the movie The Girl Can't Help It? I love it. It yeah. opens with Jane Mansfield. She's walking down the street. She's holding two Milk bottles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how the movie opens. But it's like you know, you're like, oh, "There's gonna be a wacky comedy." But it's a visual.
3: It's a visual feast. There's a great sequence in the girl can't help it where <laughs> jukeboxes are being th- thrown uh, out windows from up above, smashed yeah. into the street, and it's just this visual feast. Jerry Lewis too, the nutty professor, the color oh, and composition in that film, disorderly orderly. Frank Tashlin directing Jerry Lewis has this hilarious sight gag that ends the movie where he falls out of the back of an ambulance on a stretcher and goes down a hill. But yeah. instead of just going down a hill and crashing into something, the hill lasts for like 10 minutes. He just keeps going further down, all these things in the way, like he's almost getting crushed. And then he finally crashes into a grocery store and cans come flying out the grocery store door yeah. out into the parking lot, uh, propelled on their own propulsion. You know, these cartoony gags, they're so enjoyable. To yeah. Me, you know? A movie should be something that you can enjoy um to look at not just to listen to
1: yeah that's a great point when i think of the current uh comedies they don't have any sort of visual style or specifically i guess a little bit we have directors that are sort of known more for comedies but even that is you know the bar
3: I... the bar tends to be pretty low when it comes to comedy because we can think of a great drama that comes out every year a movie maybe nine ten fifteen great dramas a year maybe mm-hmm you would be very fortunate to find one great comedy every year. And when we do have a great comedy, it's kind of us settling for, have you seen This is the End? It's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to the Uh, lack of everything else, you know? I know. So comedy uh, in cinema to me is, uh, is frustrating because I love the history of film. I love Billy Wilder. I love Jacques Tati. Mm -hmm. Maybe it sounds pretentious to, to um, expect comedy to be like that today, but Uh, I feel like of all the film genres, it's the one that tends to be to have the worst uh, batting average in terms of the stuff that comes out.
1: Yeah, well, we're getting, you know, we're getting very sloppy. And they also say, too, that uh, American comedies don't translate uh, overseas, which is so interesting because, of course, they they used to. We used to have sort of a universal. Everybody
3: would laugh at Charlie Chaplin or. I think also a little bit of it has to do with marketing. If you call a movie a comedy, there is great pressure on that movie to be funny. <laughs> no, seriously. Like, yeah. But yeah. if you if you don't categorize it and it, you just let those... If you're not expecting a comedy and a movie is funny, you're going to love it a lot more than if a movie is marketed as a comedy. You're almost like demanding it to make you laugh. Yeah. And I think a lot of filmmakers feel that pressure that there has to be a joke, joke, joke all throughout the movie, even if it doesn't fit. That's why a lot of comedies today, you see somebody sitting on a toilet reading a newspaper right. or a fart... Because it's uh, just uh, thrown in there, you know, yeah. rather than having the, the comedy come out organically of the story. And... Well,
1: Yeah, you know, that's something Carl Reiner said, was that there's not enough time to set up the story. Right. And so they have to go to something like toilet humor so that everybody is on the same page. But they don't have the time to set up a sophisticated you know, uh, thing like they did in the Dick Van Dyke Show yeah. or Your Show of Shows. There's also
3: almost not enough uh, license given to the audience to be subjective about what's what's funny. I love A New Leaf, Elaine May. Right, me too. But what? I bet if you watched it with an audience of people, uh-huh. different people will be laughing at different things at different points. Yeah. Whereas now. The guy in the toilet, everybody's supposed to laugh at that. Or the yeah. fart, everybody's supposed to laugh at that. But there's a subtlety to the Elaine May school and the Jacques Tati school and even the Billy Wilder school where while there, there are these moments with huge laughs where everybody right. will laugh together, there's these other grace notes, little details in the background that will make you laugh if you're paying attention, you know? Yeah. Um, so I kind of miss that, and I wish uh, I wish there were some kind of renaissance coming in uh, comedy and film.
1: Sometimes there's a relief. I know with the Turner Classic movies, they showed the in the Cinemascope at the Cinerama Dome. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a mad, 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 world, mad yeah. world. And, I mean, to be in that audience, every single person laughing at this crazy, silly movie, mm-hmm uh was such a wonderful
3: feeling. Yeah, I was there for that. That was that it is the best way to see that movie for sure, because it's meant to be a spectacle and you can't yeah. really truly appreciate it. And for me, there's an extra novelty just spotting all the character actors oh. Up. oh, there's uh, Zazu oh, Pitts for right. one second. There's yeah. Eddie Rochester Anderson. Oh, there's the Three Stooges <laughs> as firemen. Like there's a a game to it almost like yeah. spot the star or spot the uh, uh the now obscure character actor that it makes it very uh uh, exciting for me to watch. That being said, if somebody says they don't find it funny, I could also understand that because mm-hmm. comedy loses its uh, its potency over as the generations pass. So mm-hmm. I never get into an argument with a younger person or even somebody my age mm-hmm. who doesn't find something funny. I mean, that's to me that's fair. You know, nobody, no two people in the world, I think, have identical tastes in comedy, no matter what. I think there are always, yeah. no matter how close you are in terms of taste with somebody, they will always find one thing funny that you don't and Mm -hmm. vice versa. So to argue it is is silly, but I love Mad World. And there's certain movies that just, again, about the visual Mm -hmm. sense to see it in a theater. Same with Jerry Lewis's Nutty Professor. That movie I don't think can be truly appreciated until you see it on the big screen and see the composition of shots and color. Um, The first time I saw that movie in the theater, I had this sort of light bulb. I went, oh, that's how the French saw this movie for years. Mm-hmm. It wasn't on late night TV like us. They were still showing it in theaters, in mm-hmm. cinematics. So, of course, people have an appreciation for Jerry Lewis there because they're seeing him in the right uh, format and yeah. context. So uh,
1: One of my favorites is, believe it or not, is Abbott and Costello. I love Abbott and Costello based on the completely horrible, enabling relationship right, that they right. have. Yeah, yeah. It's like, if you think of his modern context, poor, you know, <laughs> Lou Costello. Getting is slapped like, around. Yeah, he's always getting hit. And and uh, my favorite thing is, Bud Abbott's like, you're going you
3: gonna to take that from that guy? <laughs> he yeah. goads him, yeah. He
1: sort of goads him into... And they don't play Abbott and Costello on television anymore. I, I
3: love Abbott and Costello. And a lot of these guys, I think you cannot really appreciate them <laughs> until you've seen a bunch of them. Like to just see one Abbott and Costello movie you're not you're not going to be hip or in tune with their persona in the 40s everybody knew who they were so they didn't need that additional setup but now as more decades pass less and less people know what their relationship was what their persona was so they're less likely to laugh but the more and costello movies you watch the funnier they're going to be to you because you know kind of what the dynamic is and you can anticipate these things and when the monster is creeping up behind Lou costello and he's poking (laughs) but uh, you know it's just funny and it's funny what you said about the way uh uh Bud Abbott treats poor Lou Costello. This is terrible. I went and saw Buck Privates. They showed a 35 millimeter print at LACMA at one in the afternoon. I was the youngest person there by about 100 years. (laughs) And there was maybe only 30 people in the audience, all elderly. But I can't go to the LACMA anymore to watch movies because the audience tends to be very rude. There is no self-awareness after the Uh. age of 90. But (laughs) I was watching... Buck privates, and that was happening where Luke yeah. Costello is getting slapped around by yeah. Bud Abbott. This old man behind me starts heckling the screen. He goes, That's cruel! That's cruel! Like he got mad. At- oh my God. <laughs> wow. Got mad at Bud Abbott for the way he's treating poor Luke, Luke Costello, but. See, I loved all that.
1: I thought that that was, you know... And I love the Marx Brothers. Of course, yeah. They were like my... You know, growing up, I love yeah. Groucho Marx. I was sort well, of... Well, you've was... got
3: that book there, the Leonard Maltin uh, Great Movie Comedians yes, book. Yes,
1: stolen from... I used to steal because I was poor, so I used to... Th- steal books mm-hmm. like from and feel like it was okay <laughs> I, Library told, police I had gonna to come conf- after you. i had to confess to leonard that i had stolen this
3: book <laughs> i'm sure he's flattered though
1: but i went but yeah i discovered that that's but you know that's why i said like books like yours are important i mean i look i read these books mm-hmm. that's how i and then i would go to the movies me too. You know, too. look at the, I'd stare, did you ever do this? I'd stare at a picture before I'd even see the movie. Yes, absolutely. And then I'd be like, oh, one day I'll, yes, absolutely. I'll get to see that Well, it's
3: funny, this scene, era you know? of film book, the 70s, these movies were still so elusive. Yeah. You'd have to comb the TV guide in the hopes that the Late Late Show would, would show it now with DVDs, YouTube, TCM. Yeah. Thank God we have access to yeah, all these things. I know. Yes. But I used to study those kinds of books too. There was a uh, a book by Michael Medved and his brother before he became a political broad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> called the 50 worst films and i was again black and white photos you're yeah. studying them like the torah you know and uh they were all b- movies i wanted to see it was called the 50 worst films but i was like no i want to see yeah uh, uh they, one of the movies in there was northwest mounted police which is a uh, cecil b DeMille movie and uh-huh. trouble man starring robert hooks which was a exploitation uh, movie with a marvin gaye soundtrack And literally only within the past couple of years have I finally seen every movie in that book, but I did study it. There was this golden era of film books in the 70s. Yeah, These brilliant researchers, I don't know how they did it before the internet, you know, giant anthologies about the RKO girls, the Paramount girls and these huge biographies and great photos and that really did get me interested in, in cinema and movies and certainly I had books like that that showed all the old comedians and I desperately wanted to see all those films for sure well
1: it's, it's fascinating because you see the tie from Bob Hope to Woody Allen mm-hmm. and the, you know and again that's I love stuff like that finding a trail the trajectory yeah yeah, finding the trail and you say oh you know Mabel Norman or Mae West you know listen like Mae West was oh Yo, sure you know, absolutely sort of the Amy Schumer of her, of her day yeah. way ahead of time yeah it's
3: interesting I I, I, I think I succeeded in doing this with my book, which is to connect the dots. Sometimes it's hard to f- find the connection between a Mabel Normand and a contemporary comedian mm-hmm. because... I saw a documentary a little while ago about the Catskills and they showed all this black and white footage and said if not for the Catskills there'd be no Seinfeld and then they cut to a image of Kramer coming through the door on Seinfeld and I was like well that's a real leap of logic (laughs) it might be true but in order for it to be true you have to explain what happened in between you know you can't just say Catskills Seinfeld the connection is they're both Jewish no there's got to be one generation influencing the next generation that influences the next generation that influences the next generation. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. You know, Louis C.K. makes sense in the context of George Carlin. Mm-hmm. George Carlin makes sense in the context of Lenny Bruce. You know, one person leads to another. But sometimes with stuff like that, they'll try and lead A to Z without all the letters in between. You know, I yeah. So I try and do that in this book.
1: Well, what are so your book's coming out on paperback
3: November 8th? Yes.
1: November 8th. And are you going to write another book? Are you going to go on tour? What do you?
3: uh, I would. uh, What's going on? I would love to write another book if I didn't have to actually (laughs) write another book. (laughs) Right? We used to commiserate. I was like, I can't write it. It's it's so difficult to write a book. It's so much work. The one thing I liked is the fact that my deadline was three years away. I like that luxury. I hate you. Oh yeah, you had you had. A year I had less. like a year. Yeah.
1: No, no, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, nine months. I signed this thing, and I, mean, I was like, oh, that seems like forever.
3: Well, to be fair, the first year I did no work because I had three years. I was like, well, I'll just read, you know, that'll yeah, be my research. research, and then I'm just reading, you know, books that have nothing to do with <laughs> with comedy. But uh, I would like to write another book. I think I would like to do something that is probably the completely wrong career move, which is to write about a completely different topic. Mm-hmm. Because uh-huh. now I'm established as the comedy historian. I can right. cash in on that, and I am. But at the same time, I don't want to write another book about the same subject, mm-hmm. you know. Now that I uh, have delved into this realm of, of um, pop culture history, I'd like to do something else. That's what equally- other
0: subjects
3: interest you? Uh, LSD is one of my current fascinations. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I've been kind of uh, gathering notes about all the people who are very mainstream that Mm -hmm. were somehow influenced in a positive way as opposed to a negative way.
1: Yeah, Cary Grant. Cary Grant, Larry
3: Hagman, I just learned recently, Uh got over his fear of death in the 60s from LSD. And right before he died, he was interviewed by Joy Behar. And she was being kind of cheeky. She goes, now, I read that David Crosby from Crosby, Stills and Nash turned you on to LSD. What was that like? He goes, oh. Oh. Well, how much time do you have? And everybody laughed, but he wasn't joking. She goes, well, what was that like? Well, what did it do for you? And he goes, "Mm, it took the fear of death away. (laughs) And just totally calm as he said this. It was almost before he died. And she goes, well, what does that mean? Did it stick? He goes, all these years? He goes, yeah, it just took away the fear of death, so I have no anxiety. Like, he was so calm about death because of it. So those kinds of things fascinate me.
1: Do people still take LSD?
3: Not at all. It may be the least popular drug out there, which I find kind of interesting. Because in the 50s, it was considered a psychological psychiatry Mm -hmm. breakthrough. Mm -hmm. And then within 10 years, it was considered the devil's uh, drug, you know, so... That shift is what I find fascinating. I just Mm -hmm. ordered a book. It's 700 pages. It's a medical book from 1965 called LSD and Alcoholism about how it could cure alcoholism. And it's this very scholarly thing full of uh, footnotes. But uh, like two years later, all that research was thrown out as if it never existed, you know. So uh, I'm learning that when used properly and applied in the proper context, it it does have all these uh, very... um, Therapeutic, therapeutic, and sort of psychological breakthrough capabilities. <sighs> I know you're not going to get we, on board with this, but no, no.
1: I was just going to say. I, I was saying, as a researcher, would you have to take? LSD.
3: Uh, well, I, I did be, when I was a teenager. Oh, uh, see, I'd be
1: terri- I saw all those Sonny and Cher. <laughs> they showed us the Sonny and Cher movie right, in high the, school. The Sunny
3: Bono. Yeah, well, I so, was
1: horrified. I was like, that looks terrifying. It worked. But you know
3: why that film was made, right? Sonny Bono got busted for <laughs> narcotics, and then part of his court uh, deal was that he had to do that's this his community uh, service. Yeah, he had to host it this anti-drug drug thing. Yeah, yeah it yeah. worked on me. And he it
0: saved at least
1: one soul. Well, <laughs> of and the drugs again. Growing up on my on the commune, I certainly well, yeah. That's that's why I said you saw. won't get on board
3: with this. But. but
1: I saw I saw people on acid is scary. And they, although they were having fun, I never saw anyone have a bad trip. Uh, It looked really scary. Well,
3: I mean, it's all about uh, context, is what I've learned. So I would not tell somebody to do acid and then go to the mall. It will be a bad trip. Yeah. But with the right preparation in the right context, um, I'm coming out with a a podcast soon about the history of comedy, and one of the episodes is about comedians and LSD Uh because George Carlin and Richard Pryor became George Carlin and Richard Pryor after their LSD experiences in the late '60s. Both had been these kind of crowd pleasing. Las Vegas, pleasing tourist acts, doing fairly Mm -hmm. well, but both felt like they weren't doing what they actually wanted to do. They were doing what they thought would get them a response, but not what they actually believed. Then they both did acid in the late 60s, (laughs) separate of each other, and were suddenly given this new sort of semblance of uh, bravery and started becoming more honest on stage. So I found that very interesting. And in the 50s with the uh, researchers that were using it, Initially, they would give you acid in a clinic, like in a hospital, right? which is not really ideal because, you know, if if you're tripping on acid and there's a guy with a clipboard and he's like an authority Mm -hmm. figure, it's going to be like not what you want. So there were this new wave of researchers in the late 50s who would take you out to the woods, out to the ocean, and then do your acid trip. And they would have these incredible revelatory experiences, Mm -hmm. one of whom was this guy, Lord Buckley, who was a 50s beatnik comedian who influenced George Carlin, was uh, friends with uh, Lenny, Lenny Bruce. He was the first comedian to do LSD, and it was part of this research experiment. They wanted to see the effect of LSD on the comic mind, if it would have any oh, anything. So they gave him a dose of LSD in Lake Arrowhead and had an invite-only audience. And then Lord Buckley performed for like 15 hours. Oh,
1: no. <laughs> the most brilliant yeah.
3: Oh, my God. Stuff. Is, there, is,
1: there, is there audio of this? Apparently,
3: thing? somebody did go and pick up uh, Mort Sol's Ampex tape recorder, because not everybody wow. had a tape recorder then. but. Apparently, it was played so much over the years that it, the tape deteriorated. But Ugh. James Coburn was in that audience, and Jonathan Winters was in that audience watching. Interesting. And at one point, Jonathan Winters, who wasn't on LSD, came up on stage and improvised with Lord Buckley for like an hour. And everybody who was there said it was like one of the most uh, brilliant things they'd ever seen. I love gobsmacked. It. I know. That sounds interesting. <laughs> like well, wow. Be, yeah, that sounds like a fun book. I, would I think read you should book. write that book. Yeah. I would
0: read that book. Yeah. yeah.
3: I, I find it fascinating. Just the... The, the paradigm between before and after, yeah. when it was accepted and then when it was rejected. Exactly. You know what I mean? With no middle ground, like some of this research is valuable, some of it is not, maybe we thought too much of it, blah, 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 whatever. Yeah. It was just like black and white, 1966, it's illegal. That's the end of all of it, you know, locked yeah. up. Despite very respectable people, uh, the publisher of Time Magazine, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. even in 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 recent years, I think Steve Jobs had said that It gave him an epiphany, or some kind of uh, thing. All that kind of stuff. I'm very
1: well. I think all all the history of drugs in America, and you know, even cocaine use, and uh, you know, and then once it gets, once the government gets involved, everything just gets
3: uh, skewed. Or when people go with reckless abandon. You know, Uh, when I was researching this book, I would go through the archives of Variety. And in the 70s, the classified ads are all like, uh, need actresses for this casting call for this movie. Right. In the 80s, suddenly all the variety classified ads say, need help? Addiction problem? Can't get off cocaine? <laughs> like, it's like... I know. Everybody thought, oh, yeah, it's just like smoking pot, you know? And yeah. No, sir, it's, you know, one of the most addictive things you could do. It is.
1: I, it's one of the sad things in the early movie, you know, they were all addicted to morphine. Right. I mean, really...
3: Isn't that interesting? Every generation has yeah. their uh, weird sort of thing they think is okay, and then later on but now what it's probably discover. now it's probably prescription drugs.
1: I think it is it's oxycodone. Like,
3: here you go this is okay for you and then years yeah. later everybody's got a, a problem with it.
1: Well know? I would definitely have to say I'm not a drug user but I'd be more into up Things than the, the dulling, I, I like. I'm like, who wants to be? I don't understand. I never understood the appeal of downers. Like, mm. who wants to feel down? Like, right. I would want to. I like. I like the Dexedrine days. Like, I would have fit. I, I love like '58. I want the Kennedy years. Like, yeah, give me a shot well, of that B-12. We could,
3: we could definitely write a lot of books if we had that, you know. <laughs> no sleep, just all week long, just writing, yeah.
1: <laughs> I like that, seeing Sid Caesar, you know, like jumping around. You're like, yeah, that guy was definitely uh, like
3: getting his Dexadrine you know, shot. Got a trim figure and getting a lot of work done, yeah. yeah.
1: Anyway, Cliff Nesteroff, thank you so much. Your book, The Comedians. Yes. Uh, and please come back anytime you want to talk thank about movies or comedians. Thank you for having me. Movies yes, or thank comedians. You for and as we always say, everyone's life is a movie with a beginning, middle, and an end. This is uh, the end of our show. Thanks for listening to us. What were um, yeah,
0: and you can buy Ileana's book on Amazon. or It's out in paperback now or in bookstores. Yeah. Mind and uh, check out our Facebook page. Our website is ilianaspodcast.com. There will be more info about Cliff there. Lots of good scoops. So thanks for hanging out with us, everybody. Thanks. Have a great time.
1: day.
3: From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com.